It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who are a little afraid of what's going to happen in the next two weeks of our lives. <laughs> kind of watching it like. Oh, man, I'm trying to think of the right movie reference here where you're just watching, like, whether it's the, like, spaceships in Independence Day moving slowly in. Maybe that's it. It's Will Smith. It's it's, it's Don't Look Up. He's getting... I haven't watched that yet. I'm excited to watch that. I'll probably watch that this week. Uh, I usually do an apocalyptic movie at the end of each year, but I haven't gotten mine in yet. I mean, it's because um, you've been living in apocalypse. Right. So... But I'm thinking of the scene where Will Smith comes out. He's getting the paper. He doesn't know. He doesn't know anything's going on, and he and he's noticing all the neighbors are looking at something. And then he looks up, and there's just this huge cloud covering an ominous spaceship. That's kind of how <laughs> I think a lot of us are feeling, if not actually already being attacked by the spaceship yeah yes I, the meteor is plunging into the earth as the little fighters shooting their green stuff are coming out shooting they are i don't and like they're not it. as cute as the looney tunes guy no no they're not marvin they're not marvin <laughs> anyhow my name's karen ernst i'm the executive director of voices for vaccines and i'm dr nathan boonstra general pediatrician here at blank children's hospital in des moines iowa so we have a wonderful um interview in the second half today with patsy stinchfield who's a nurse practitioner and all-around great gal and she is going to talk to us all about kids and COVID vaccines, um, trying to get more kiddos vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And what hap- this is actually a really interesting interview because it's yeah, not that's... me interviewing. It was actually a live Zoom Q&A um, with parents asking their own questions of Patsy. So mm-hmm. super interesting. And it's worth pointing out that as we record this, and so this is, and, and the interview with Patsy was, Earlier, so it will not concern this, but FDA has authorized boosters for 12 to 15 year olds. Uh, CDC has not yet weighed in. I think they're expected to tomorrow, like, tomorrow um, which is great. I will say that timing wise, boy, it would have been nice if we had had this, you know, three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just like it would have been nice if we had five to 11 year old vaccines before school started. Mm-hmm. But here we are doing the best with what we got apparently yeah science and the school calendar are not matching up. no apparently not well i'm really excited to do my around the web okay because um <laughs> uh, cdc as many of us know are in this ever-evolving space where they're trying to get the recommendations about quarantining right So I'm going to be fair-minded first. In my Uh fair-minded assessment, they're trying to weigh um, the function of society against the spread of the virus. Uh, You know, we need to make sure that we have firefighters and teachers and doctors Uh out there doing their work. Um, And my DoorDash guy. So, like, all those things (laughs) are super important. (laughs) Um, uh, In in that, um, they are you know 
encouraging people that if you don't have symptoms, you can stop isolating after five days after a positive test. Uh-huh. Um, and now, like, I, like I'm a little confused. I think they're adding in, you should test again and make sure it's negative. Uh, good luck finding a test. Okay. Yeah, right. But um, my around the web is just this amazing thing that's happening on Twitter that's making me laugh about <laughs> what the CDC recommends. Yes. Um, so this is a good one. The CDC recommends that you wake in the morning and you step outside and you take a deep breath and you get real high and you yeah. scream at the top of your lungs, what's going on? Um, the CDC now recommends ignoring the red flags and texting him anyway. <laughs> CDC recommends quarantining in a bag of uncooked rice for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> the CDC recommends staying at home with your dog so they're not so sad. I thought that was cute. The <laughs> CDC recommends crafting your own medicine with one wasp's nest and two, three clumps of weeds. And I'll just read this last one. The CDC recommends splitting up your quarantine over your two 15-minute breaks. Yes. A lot of the really funny ones were, were things that are already about how hard it is to be a healthcare worker where it's like, yeah, CDC recommends it's fine to do something in healthcare that is questionable. I like those. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's uh, so, th- you know, there's just a little levity. We have to laugh or otherwise we're going to cry. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been laughing now for two years in this pandemic. We're about to reach the point. We're just a couple months away from um, our original optimistic March 2020 lockdowns. Yeah. Um, which, <laughs> just, just keep swimming yeah which we're probably two years too early i don't know maybe i just want to lock down because i'm tired of people yeah that's where we're at yeah it's really frustrating between the well between those and the, the this feeling that you know with the boosters and everything like that yeah could we have not planned this better we're really not thinking early enough that we needed vaccines out for this age group by this time but Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, fortunately, fortunately, Dr. Peter Hotez is going to save the world, which is what my around the web is about. So Good. I am wanting to talk just a little bit, or at least bring to people's attention the new vaccine, which I believe is called Corbivax. Uh, and I'm looking at a Scientific American article called "A COVID Vaccine for All," uh, and the article is written by Dr. Hotez and Dr. Maria Elena Botazzi, who's co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center. And, and we all know Dr. Hotez, who's uh, from Baylor and co-heads the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development and is an expert in like exotic zoonotic diseases. Um, and they are their their team has developed a a COVID vaccine that is designed specifically for global health, which is basically to say that it is relatively cheap. It is relatively easy to store. They're not patenting things that can't be so that so that'll make it available to be not just sold or made and sold to other countries, but other countries may be able to utilize the technology and make their own vaccines at a much easier, in a much easier situation than the current vaccines that we have. Um, and uh, if I'm reading and understanding correctly, um, for example, the central government of India has already ordered 300 million doses and other countries have ordered doses, main, meaning that the 
Corbivax will soon vaccinate more people than vaccines donated so far by any G7 country, including the United States. So I think that is huge. And we've talked, you know, we talk about vaccine equity on this show, but it doesn't get enough attention um, to understand what we're talking about right now, which is that um, we're in this pandemic for a long time until the world can get vaccinated for sure. Mm -hmm. And any barrier that we can take out so that that can happen is a huge step in the right direction. So kudos to this team. Please read this article on Scientific America. And there's also a, a, a um, like press release by Texas Children's. Wow, that is amazing. Um, I was not aware of this. I did just find the article, so I'll put that mm-hmm. in the show notes. But uh, it, part of it, you know, uh, Dr. Hotez works on neglected tropical diseases. Uh-huh diseases you don't know about and you don't care about and diseases that don't make pharmaceutical companies any money to treat. Right. Uh, and yeah, the uh, use of the term exotic is probably not the best term to use because it's it seems <laughs> that is definitely a very uh, regional centric uh, term to use. I mean, I think I'm kind of exotic, so. Uh, <laughs> But I was going to say, you know, his work is super important. Um, and I have colleagues at the Task Force for Global Health who do who do other work on um, NTDs, such mm-hmm. as you know, river blindness. Um, that work is important to the people it helps. But in this sense, it shows how it really is important to all of us because yeah. Dr. Hotez and um, lots of folks who work on NTDs and work on global health are really our key to um, bringing some sort of resolution to the crisis that is this pandemic right now in getting vaccines and the kind of vaccines um, available to people in all stretches of the globe. Uh, and because they're because they have that NTD experience, and Dr. Hotez has his particular vaccinology and NTD experience. Mm-hmm. He's able to do that. And that just shows why public health and global health and um, research about NTDs and all of these things that are so invisible to us most of the time are actually mm-hmm. really critical to us in ways that we don't understand. The vaccine looks, the vaccine's actually based on technology that's similar to hepatitis B vaccine, it's a yeast based. Um, production and it, the vet, the safety and efficacy look good. I mean, they're saying upwards of, of course, we don't have Omicron data, I don't think, but looking at it, they're saying like 90% against symptomatic infection for uh, or like the Wuhan strain or the what they call the ancestral Wuhan strain and the 80% against the Delta strain. So I'm hopeful. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Let's let's uh let's fund that stuff. Let's get it out. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. But in the but meantime, first. but first, let's talk about kids here and the vaccines to prevent COVID and why they're why they're worth a shot. OK, 
Hey, welcome everybody to this COVID vaccine and kids Q&A with my good friend, Patsy Stinchfield, who is a nurse practitioner and all sorts of amazing things. Um, she recently retired from Children's Minnesota and she was in charge of infection prevention at those two hospitals. Um, she also was recently elected as president of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases. And she represents NAPNAP, uh, pediatric nurse practitioners on the advisory council for uh, advisory committee for immunization practices, ACIP. And um, she's been doing ACIP for a very long time mm -hmm. and is really more than decently immersed in how that committee works and how vaccine recommendation gets gets vaccine recommendations get made as well as the data about COVID-19 vaccines or you know any other vaccines on the schedule right now so she is um, my friend and uh, resident know-it-all about vaccines <laughs> hi Patsy hello Karen hi everybody thanks for the invitation it's really great to be here I'm, I'm currently the president-elect of NFID I'll become the president in June so um, very happy to Share an hour of question and answers on COVID and kids. All right, let's go ahead and get started on our questions for Patsy. Denise from Virginia, can I just call on you and ask you to unmute yourself? I had a question about long COVID. Um, are we seeing a lot of cases in long, you know, of long COVID in children? And if we are, is the vaccine seeming to help those children? Yeah, it's a great question, Denise. Thanks for asking that. So we know a lot more about long COVID in adults, um, and we're learning more about it in children. One, children definitely do get long COVID. The NIH has just uh, opened up an enrollment of a study. They're going to include about 1,000 kids and follow them long term. Um, and so we will have a lot more um, knowledge about this in the future. But <clears throat> what we know about long COVID is, is that it can be very debilitating. And about 6 million children have been diagnosed with it so far. Um, and it can be uh, this kind of vague symptoms of, you know, chronic fatigue, brain fog, um, inability to do math and computation, things that you used to be able to do, um, just really uh, some myalgias, uh, like a whole host of things. I have a, a colleague who has been suffering from long COVID, a physician, um, for many, many months, and like has been out of work and quite debilitated and finally was able to be enrolled in a Mayo study. And what they're doing uh, with this person at Mayo is a, this interdisciplinary approach that's including uh, physical therapy, you know, muscular rehab, mental brain rehab, so that you're learning how to redo some calculations and computations and things like that. Um, psychology, there's some mental health, there's uh, all kinds of interdisciplinary approaches to this. And there are various clinics popping up around the country, both for kids and adults to help deal with this. So the question about do vaccines help? Well, I think, um, you know, they certainly will help if you can prevent COVID, you can prevent long COVID. And so for those, so in, the, in that sense of the word, yes, I think vaccines help. There have been some anecdotal reports about people who've had long COVID, they got sick, 
they they were you know suffering with long covid they got vaccinated and somehow their their symptoms improved i think these are still anecdotal and we're we're trying to learn a lot about it first of all we have to understand what is this is it a is it a sort of a an immune response that is not kind of completely shutting down the virus is it a prolonged inflammatory response you know and there's people that are saying you know we've we've tried to describe this to you after Lyme disease or after Epstein-Barr, like chronic mono. And I, I know in my career in infectious disease as a nurse practitioner, I take I took care of a lot of uh, patients who had lingering symptoms for long periods of time after an initial um, infection. So we would sometimes just put it in a big bucket and call it post-viral syndrome. Like you'll get better we don't know what it is. We don't know what to do, but we would, I would always encourage, um, you know, physical exercise and um, lots of other kinds of sort of normalizing your life rather than sort of like can't get off the couch kind of thing. So we're, we'll learn a lot more about this. Great question, Denise. Thank you, Denise. Um, next up, we have Elizabeth. Elizabeth, where are you, where are you from? Hi, good afternoon. This is Elizabeth from Iowa. Thanks for being with us, Patsy. I'm wondering, um, and I'm sure lots of people are having this, these thoughts right now. So if my kids are fully vaccinated, can we feel safe going to Christmas um, with my family? Some of them may not be boosted, may not be vaccinated and masks yeah. be <laughs> something they'll agree to. I hear you, Elizabeth. Good question. It's really the holidays and what to do about the holidays is, is on everybody's mind. And especially because with each passing day, we're learning more and more about the new variant Omicron. So I've had to struggle with this in my own family. So I'm a grandma. I have a two-year-old daughter who's unvaccinated. And we can talk about how upsetting that is for all of us to have to wait more uh, for that age group. And then I have a five-month-old grandson who's getting lots of maternal antibodies from um, breast, breast milk. I think what we have to decide is, so all of us have different levels of tolerance for risk. So what's your particular, you know, situation and level, level of risk tolerance? Because of these two young kids who are really quite vulnerable, um, or if you had an immune deficient person in your family, or if you had an older person in the family, and really some of the ages are 60 and over, they're saying are, you know, the, the older you get, the, the greater your risk is. So you have to kind of think about who is coming and then secondly, what are their vaccine, what's the vaccine status of everybody um, uh, participating in the event? The principles are kind of in indoors is a little riskier than outdoors. Well, you know, many of us, you in Iowa, don't have the luxury of having, you know, whole parties outside um, because it's too cold. Um, but at least opening some windows, cracking open a door, getting some better ventilation, I think is helping. So um, smaller is better than large uh, events. Um, and, and I would definitely avoid like major events, concerts, um, big close together, you know, holiday events, things like that. Um, the, the, the guidance really is to make sure that everyone who gathers is vaccinated and boosted who can be. And the morning of like right before you get together to do a rapid test. And the reason for that, not, not doing it three days before or say, well, my PCR was negative. It's like, well, then did you stay under your bed for the next three days? Um, uh, because the exposures are, are 
pretty readily everywhere right now. So doing a rapid test right before, and then using all of those mitigation strategies, wearing uh, good masks, good quality masks, we really need to kind of up our game on that to either surgical or the KN95 masks. Um, And certainly you can't eat with those on. So uh, taking your mask off, you know, for eating and drinking, but the better, the better thing is a smaller group where everyone is, is vaccinated and and keeping that bubble as small as possible. Thank you so much for that question, Elizabeth. I think that's a question that a lot of people have on their minds. Can I ask another one? Go ahead. Patsy, I'm wondering, um, can you talk a little bit about if kids will need boosters? Yeah, so the um, the kids situation, let me just catch everybody up where we are. So we know right now that everybody five uh, and over can be vaccinated. The boosters are for um, everyone 16 and over. Um, 16 and 17 year olds can get Pfizer boosters, 18 and over can get Pfizer, Moderna or J&J and, and there's considerations for all of those. Um, Anyone 12 and over who has an immune deficiency or some reason that they would have severe COVID could get a third dose. Um, And that would be a a Pfizer, of course, and would be through your own um, conversation with your clinician. So then that leaves us with, you know, the the younger kids. And and I don't know if you guys saw the the news release that came out from Pfizer. It was a little depressing. Um, We had hoped that we would get um, some data back from Pfizer on the under five-year-olds by um, to the FDA, and then it goes to the ACIP. Um, We were thinking, anticipating that in early 2022, like in January, And it looks like um, that's probably going to be closer to springtime. So they're saying now the first uh, the first half. And and here's here's why they've been evaluating um, the the doses. And I think for the five to 11, I just want to say what took a little bit longer with that group was trying to get that sweet spot. What is the dose we need? that will give you the immune response at these kids' immune systems at five to 11 who are pretty robust in recognizing germs. They're, they're pretty active in that right now without a high level of you know, side effects, arm soreness, fever, things like that. And the sweet spot I think got hit with uh, that 10 microgram. I've been working at Children's Minnesota Clinics and everybody who comes back is saying, hey, we did pretty well. It was you know not too much arm soreness, a day or two of fatigue, maybe a little bit of fever. Um, so, uh, that, that dose was used. Um, and then we went down to, uh, Pfizer is studying a smaller dose for the younger kids went down to a three microgram and they have what's called non-inferiority. So there's a group that they compare it to, which is the 16 to 25 year olds. And the, um, results have to be as good or better than what was approved in that 65, uh, and over for the six to 24 month olds. It was, it, it was good immunity and low, uh, side effects, but for whatever reason, the two-year-old to five-year-olds was inferior. It did not match um, the level of immunity that we wanted for um, that was similar in that 16 to 25 year olds. So that put a little bit of pause on, you know, if that had been good data, like everything looked good, we probably would have gotten that in January. So what they're doing is adding um, 
in a, a prolonged study and adding a third dose and seeing now that Omicron is available, is uh, circulating, that it may be that we're, that it's not like two doses and a booster, that this is like, you know, our original hepatitis B, like you need three doses, you need two close together and then you need one, you know, six months so that your immune system can, can get some time to recognize it and respond. So they'll be testing um, a 10 microgram dose um, in the uh, five to 12 year olds. Um, and then a, a third dose in 12 to 17 year olds is also being uh, looked at both a 10 microgram and a 30 microgram. So that group right now doesn't have it routinely recommended except for the immunodeficient. Um, but I think Omicron is really kind of changing that conversation. And again, does it work? Is it making good immune uh, uh, immune response? And is it safe? Are we having sort of not excessive amounts of arm soreness or things like that? So stay tuned. It's it's. Um, I think it's everyone in pediatrics is bummed out about this because that uh, that age group, you know, that under five, when you're trying to get together for the holidays, they really are the most vulnerable and. Um, it kind of changes the landscape and thinking about, can we travel? Can we, you know, bring in other people outside of the home when, when they still are um, really quite vulnerable and kids do get COVID, they do get hospitalized, they can die. Um, and some of our original thoughts about, you know, kids don't get this, it's mild. It went from about 3% of cases of all COVID cases were in children to now it's up to almost 24% and climbing. Um, so we really just have to pay attention to this. The good news is, is that kids uh, don't die of COVID very often. It's less than 1%. And they don't get hospitalized at the same rate as adults, especially older adults. It's only, you know, something like uh, two or 3% of all kids with COVID get in the hospital. But nevertheless, you know, we've, we have lost 668 children to COVID in the United States. And, and that is three times what we have lost, what we lose annually to influenza. So, um, you know, we really want vaccines for all age groups. Diane, could you tell us uh, where you're from and go ahead and ask your question? Yes, my name is Diane Pape Freiberger and I'm from Dubuque, Iowa. So you, you can all practice that. But um, the question that I have is, we are hearing a resistance from parents to get their children vaccinated because they had COVID. And what I'm hearing about the Omicron is that even if you've had COVID prior to this time, that you still should get vaccinated because there is no resistance to the Omicron simply from um, having had COVID. Yeah, that's a great question, my uh, my neighbor in Iowa here. Um, so we originally, you know, were like, well, I've had it, and and once you have it, you have immunity for life. Well, we'll have to see in it, and very quickly we realized that is not going to be the case. Um, like in some diseases, like measles, you get measles, you you know, you've got immunity for life because it's a pretty straightforward. Um, virus. This is such a complicated virus and it keeps changing itself. And so we're trying to kind of keep up with it. So because you make antibodies to um, 
your first infection doesn't mean those antibodies are going to stay with you and protect you. Now we've, we've transitioned to the Delta variant and now we've gone to the, the Omicron uh, variant. And so those original um, antibodies helping uh, protect you uh, really are, should not be relied upon. They're not long lasting. Um, and we really saw in some of the, um, the data that the people that had the highest levels of, of antibodies who had had disease were the really sickest patients, those who were in the intensive care unit, long periods of time. Um, pretty much if you've had mild uh, to moderate COVID, you know, you lost your sense of smell, you had cold type symptoms, uh, those are not uh, protective antibodies. They wane pretty quickly. The other thing is that what vaccines are giving us, especially that third dose that's delayed, it really helps build that part of your immune system, uh, which is your T cells. And that those are kind of your long lasting um, coverage. They help respond and remember, um, as well as you know your original antibodies that neutralize the virus. So um, uh, we should not rely on um, uh, disease alone. And in fact, as some of the studies are showing that probably the best uh, combination is someone who's had COVID then gets two doses plus a booster that you're probably at your highest, uh, most long lasting antibody protection. Now that's not to say you go out and try to get COVID, but uh, for if those who have had it and then get vaccinated, they're, they're probably in the best shape. Okay, thank you so much. That was such a great answer, Patsy. Uh, Rachel, I think she's also <coughs> from Iowa, has her hand up. Rachel, you wanna go ahead and unmute yourself? Hey, this is Rachel from Iowa City. Um, I have one kiddo that's seven that got vaccinated, um, but I do have a little girl that will be turning five next spring. And I was just wondering, um, will she be able to get like her other immunizations potentially at the same time as her COVID vaccine? Yeah, Rachel, uh, another Iowan. That's uh, a great question. It's a common question. And yes, um, get co-administering vaccines, especially COVID and influenza we should be getting right now. You can give one in um, each arm or each leg for kiddos. At the kindergarten, you do get uh, several vaccines. Um, but I would say is, uh, if she's due for her uh, first dose of COVID at the same time as her kindergarten, which she would turn five and, and she would be, um, that it's okay to do them all at the same time. I think the, the providers know how to separate them um, into different limbs. Yeah, look at her celebration emoji. That's good. Um, <laughs> um, and, and you really, you know, it's the, the thought about, well, let's separate these. All you do is kind of make the kid more miserable day after day after day, you know, so they may have some fever, they may have some arm soreness uh, or leg soreness. Um, and the, the studies, even before COVID vaccines show that multiple vaccine administration does not increase your, your level of fever or your level of discomfort or pain. So it's actually better to do them together. And then just the sort of simple, like getting in the car and driving to the clinic, you know, you risk getting in an accident and, and other bad things that can happen. So um, get her done. Yeah. Plus you have to drive your kid across town to go get a vaccine. And we all know how painful that can be for the parents. So we have to consider <laughs> right. that as well. That's right. <laughs> Thank you for that question, Rachel. It really makes me wonder. I had a um, 
for adults, I have a friend whose husband was talked into getting a flu shot in one arm and a COVID shot in the other. And she said to me, oh, I think my husband's going to be really, really sick. Was that okay for her husband to be talked into that? Well, sure. Um, to have to get two vaccines at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, husbands can, they can do it just like kids can too. So I don't know. Have you ever had a husband with a man cold? Well, my husband got his uh, COVID vaccine, flu vaccine, and his shingles uh, sh- uh, first dose at the same day. And he did um, sleep a lot the next day. Um, so, but I-, I said, yeah, that's the right thing to do. Go for that. Um, we do have Shannon asking if schools, will schools require your child to have COVID vaccine in order to be enrolled in school? Uh, school rules are very state oriented um, and country oriented. So there's no federal mandate for school entry. Uh, th- these are state by state, as, as many of you know. Um, and, you know, whether states will think of COVID vaccine like measles, you can't sit in the classroom and potentially have measles and be passing it to the whole class. And now it seems like like the Omicron variant is as transmissible as, as measles is. It's airborne, it stays aloft in the air one or two hours. If somebody is asymptomatic, and that's what makes this such a wicked virus, is that you can be asymptomatic and spreading one to two days before you even know that you have it and sitting in the classroom. And the number of kids that you're gonna expose is potentially that whole class. So to me, it makes sense that it would become you know, normalized like the other vaccines, you have to show proof of immunity before you get into a classroom at, you know, working in hospitals, you have to show that you've been vaccinated. So you're not a nurse or respiratory therapist taking care of a premature baby. And, you know, you didn't know it, but you've got chicken pox, or you've got measles or COVID. So I do think states are going to take this up right now. You know, the country is just so contentious and has such strong and different opinions um, about this that um, I think the, you know, the Biden administration, uh, 100 employee business or greater mandating that, you know, is going through the courts and it just came back from uh, the Supreme Court that they are are not going to block that. So I think some of those legal challenges on the on the adult and business side will probably influence the school side. But I, I personally think it's just makes sense. And let's not, you know, make it more complicated than it needs to be. And it is of all the things that we're vaccinating against, more children are, are dying of COVID than many of the other things that we vaccinated against. So why why wouldn't we? That's the idea is to protect kids. That's a really wonderful point to, um, to bring up there. I know we have Joan Edelstein who is um, on and wants to give us some insight about California school requirements. Yeah, so what's happening in California, I think there may have been news about we there's a plan to have COVID um, vaccines as standard for school entry. However, we also have several school districts that have decided to mandate COVID vaccines. Right now, um, obviously there are court challenges, but depending on the district that you're in, uh, for example, Piedmont Unified in the Bay Area has uh, mandated COVID vaccines with no personal belief exemption the same way as all the other vaccines have been given. Los Angeles Unified School District was among the first to mandate along with Culver City. They've pushed it back to looking at fall of 2022 to get all the kids vaccinated. And by then it's possible that we will have a state mandate 
either through the California Department of Public Health or through the legislator, legislature. If it goes to the legislature, there will probably not be a personal belief exemption. If it goes to the California Department of Public Health, there has to be a personal belief exemption. Interesting, Joan. Thanks for sharing that. And boy, California has uh, led the way, haven't they? And so many of these, uh, you know, vaccine uh, laws that I think are just common sense to to protect kids and communities. So thanks for all the work that you're doing on that, Joan. Yeah, thank you for that insight, Joan. Brittany, do you want to ask this? um, Do you want to ask this live or would you rather to have me read it? Oh, she doesn't have a microphone, so I'm going to read it for her. My six-year-old daughter had COVID in November 2021. She tested positive the day I was going to get her the vaccine. When should I get her the vaccine? Would it be okay to wait six months after November 2021? Yeah, so, you know, the uh, this is happening a lot to people that they're getting ready to go in and they end up getting COVID. Um, what we're saying is that you want to wait until your acute infectious period is over. So at least a couple of weeks. You should not show up at a vaccine clinic infectious and spreading to other people. So that's for sure not in that first 10 days, even if you just were asymptomatic and you happen to stumble on a positive, you feel fine, or maybe you just lost your sense of smell for a day or two, um, really wait that that 14 days or so. As soon as the those acute symptoms are over with, you can start the schedule and then follow the, the usual um, recommendation, which is, you know, dose one for kids and then 21 days, dose two, and then um, if they're eligible, depending on their age, uh, six months later for their booster. I have, yeah, I have heard, you know, a lot of people who they get their kids vaccinated and then a couple days later they test positive, which is just such a huge bummer. Um, and then you have to do all sorts of tricky math about it. Um, one of the things people worry about with that is that they they feel like the the three weeks are sort of a, a fixed timeline. So for the vaccine to work, they have to be given exactly that amount of time apart. Um, it, it, in similar similar questions, I've gotten people worry that, you know, they take their kid in to get vaccinated and then for whatever reason, they, they miss their vaccine appointment and then all of a sudden they're a week late. So now are they gonna have to start the series all over again? And a lot of people wonder how that works. Yeah, so um, you can't go earlier because you really are trying to give, you know, between dose one and dose two, you're trying to give your immune system some time to recognize it, develop, you know, the immune uh, awareness of the, the spike proteins and make those antibodies and then be able to now then respond with dose two. So you don't want to go earlier. Um, there is what's called the four day grace period where you can go four days earlier than say, if you were starting uh, like in the five-year-old example we just had, they could they could go to the clinic four days before their fifth birthday. That's the earliest we would allow you to do that. So generally, we don't encourage you to, to go earlier. But if in this scenario, Karen, if you were a week late or two weeks late, or you know you went out of the country or something, um, you uh, you don't have to start over. You should just um, pick up where you left off and then keep that that booster interval. Fabulous, thank you. Liz, my friend Liz from California, has a question. Hi, Liz. Hi. You may not be able to answer this, but everybody wants to know what is going on with Moderna in uh, people under 18. What is taking so long for 
uh, the EUA to be expanded. Do you have any insight on that? You know, I don't have any insight on that other than to to know that, um, you know, it's all about following the rules. Like you've got to have the data, the, the results have to be um, encouraging and sort of they have to show safety, they have to show uh, immunogenicity. Um, but I don't have the insight as to, you know, what the delay is. Thank you. You know, we are uh, on ACIP, you'd be uh, amazed at like this Pfizer announcement. I, I, we didn't get that in advance. We I, I saw it in the news and I looked, I went to the company and looked up their press release that sometimes we don't get things in advance. And, and I think it's because there's a proper way to do things that you'll come to the meeting, we'll submit you the information the day of or the day before. Um, and the ACIP meetings are just incredibly transparent. Liz is a, a common caller in the public comment, and uh, she gave a marvelous shout out to one of our uh, favorite physicians on Twitter who does these marvelous stories about meeting people where they are and having vaccine conversations. And um, But the I think ACIP really is a model for public policy um, in the U.S. and uh, and around the world for how, you know, all their slides, if you want to look at the data, they post the slides. You can just go to the cdc.gov, ACIP meetings, and go to meeting materials, and, and all, the, all the slides that they discuss are there, and you can, you can use them um, and uh, share them with others. So, um, there it's, but it has to be when the data is ready. And I think one of the things people were like, wow, this came so fast. It's it, these vaccines, these messenger RNA vaccines are medical marvels. There's no doubt about it. Um, but they were fast because there was commitment, there was collaboration, there was investment, um, there was urgency. People stopped doing all kinds of other, you know, research and poured their heart and souls 24 seven uh, into this. And so no, no safety shortcuts were taken. All those phase one, two, three uh, clinical trials were followed. And I have uh, have nothing to be concerned about um, being on the ACIP with uh, shortcuts that would, you know, harm the public in any way. Thank you so much, Liz. It was a great question. We have a question from Murtaza. Uh, when when are those Pfizer approvals coming for the uh, under fives? Um, this is interesting, though. My baby is in the Pfizer trial, and we won't find out whether she received the vaccine or placebo until six months after enrollment or April or when the EUE is, EUA is received. So they are really... You know, they want to know if they got the real thing or not. And you went you went through this before about how there's been a delay in the data. You know, and I also want to say when we were looking at the five through was it five through twelve approval, a lot of people thought that was going to come out in September, but that was delayed as well. And so if, if you have more insight about when Pfizer might be ready for the really, really littles, that would be great. Um, but also if you could just talk about um, why these delays shouldn't make us feel worried about the vaccine. Yeah. So first of all, let's just all take our hats off to these families who sign their kids up for clinical trials. I mean, honestly, where would we be without without all the the kids and adults um, who have signed up for these clinical trials? 
Um, there are a lot of, you know, clinicians, kids, uh, researchers, kids, um, you know, physicians and nurses, kids, but there are also people who are like, I am going to, I really want my kid vaccinated and I might get a placebo, but I might get the real thing. And then we'd be protected earlier. And then, you know, come to find out they have to wait, you know, they have to wait. So it is a, it is a trying time for them as well. But first of all, none of us would be where we are without the people who not only created, um, the vaccines, uh, but then also those uh, who were willing to roll up their sleeves and um, be studied over this time. And also the people in the, all the public policy decisions, the regulatory, and then all the people who show up to get vaccinated and bring their kids, and then all the people who give the vaccine. I mean, this is just a massive, massive endeavor. We need the entire world to be vaccinated. And so um, it's a little depressing that the, the U.S., we were at 3 million doses a day. And then I think, you know, it started working and we saw Delta plummeting back in the spring. And by July, we were down to, you know, just very few cases. And I think people let their guard down like, oh, this is done. It's over. Um, and so I don't have any more than what I said earlier about the young kids, um, that it'll be probably later um, in 2022 than we originally thought, but hopefully still the first half. And and the delays are what science is about. I don't, it doesn't make me have less confidence in it. It actually gives me more confidence that people are really pausing. They're saying, no, it, it's inferior, you know, for this two to five-year-old age group was inferior to what we had our pre-established mark. It didn't meet the mark. So what do we need to do? We need to go back. We need to increase the dose. We need to give a third dose. Um, this is what science does. And th I think that's one of the things that's been quite amazing in the pandemic is Everybody knows what an epidemiologist is now. Um, everybody knows what a, a you know the ACIP is and does, and you know how the whole process. I think we've all learned a lot, but this has been science in real time, um, and I I hope that people can understand that as frustrating as these pauses are and the delays are, and even just the the amazing sort of. Uh, you know, catches that we can have with all of our vaccine safety systems. The fact that we know about myocarditis after messenger RNA vaccines is because we have this phenomenal vaccine safety system. We don't just approve a vaccine and never look back. We're constantly looking at it. And what do we know? The V-Safe program has been fantastic for people that are getting vaccines to use this phone-based uh, process in real time saying, yep, here's what I had. I had fever, I had body aches, or I didn't have any thing. Um, so we can talk about the myocarditis for a minute if you want to, Karen. Yes, can we please? I'm especially uh, because I'm seeing a lot of chatter online with folks who are concerned about the myocarditis that they saw in the 13 ups and that translating into our five to 12 year olds. Yeah, yep, exactly. So let's just talk about so myocarditis is a, a big umbrella term. It's kind of like pneumonia. I mean, you can have pneumonia from a bacteria, from a virus, from vaping. The same with myocarditis. It's the inflammation of your heart muscle. That doesn't sound good. A pericarditis, the inflammation of the lining of the heart. You know, anything inflaming your heart it sounds scary, and it is scary. Um, and they, the kids, uh, the older kids uh, presented with chest pain. And we just uh, last week had our presentation at ACIP, and there, there were uh, eight kids that were reports of myocarditis in the 5 to 11 age group. 
They, uh, the myocarditis, so this is now post-vaccine myocarditis. They present with chest pain. It's usually within the first three days. Um, it tends to be more in dose two. Um, in the older adolescents, it tended to be in males. Um, in this five to 11, it was four girls and four boys. Um, and uh, there were no deaths. There were no like long-term problems. Um, and when this first started showing up uh, in the older age group, I, I called up my, my pal who's the chief of cardiology at, um, at Children's. And I said, are you, are you seeing this? And he's like, yeah, we are. In fact, I, you know, the, the pediatric cardiologists in the United States are a tight club and they have lots of data that they share together. And they started all sharing uh, data immediately um, and saying that we're seeing this, that we're seeing myocarditis after vaccination. But more so what they were talking about is we're seeing bad myocarditis of kids who have COVID. And so then they started to compare, well, what is, you know, what is the background rate of myocarditis? You can get it from a cold where the cold, you know, just a regular common cold lands on the lining of your heart and gives you inflammation. You can get it from COVID virus. You can get it after the vaccine. And what, what the data is showing us is that if you're worried about myocarditis, the best thing to do is to get vaccinated because post-vaccine myocarditis is about one in a million. But post-COVID disease myocarditis is about 40 in a million. So um, it is something that we're paying attention to. And it really is probably all related to the affinity of this virus to our vasculature. Like it really likes to go in and cause uh, an immune response to our, our blood vessels, a vasculitis. And, and our blood vessels are all over our, our whole body, which is why you're seeing, you know, different kinds of disease entities and problems related to COVID, heart, lung, livers, brain, um, skin, toes. Uh, so the, um, the heart being such a vascular organ, um, it, it does kind of follow and make sense. So again, you know, myocarditis is a rare um, a rare side effect that we picked up because of our fantastic safety systems in the United States are reporting through VAERS, are reporting through the vaccine safety uh, uh, data sets and, you know, lots of lots of different ways that we're all looking for things. And um, when, when we report and bring it up, um, it's again, it's so transparent that we know how to counsel people, what to be concerned about, and then comparing it to background rates of myocarditis, myocarditis related to the, the disease. And then at the end of the day, we can say, you know, the safer thing is to get vaccinated. You know, Patsy, sort of related to that one question I've had that I haven't been able to figure out the answer to is around um, MIS-C, so that multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, um, which happens after they contract COVID-19 itself. Um, and what one thing I haven't been able to, to really find good data on is if kids who are vaccinated and end up with a breakthrough infection are less likely to have sort of that missy type of um, after effect. It's a good question. And I don't know that we know the answer to that yet, but 
we have definitely seen a decrease in Miss C more recently, which makes me think that the vaccine is uh, helping prevent disease and therefore uh, prevent Miss C afterwards. And I think with with Omicron breakthroughs and the kinds of uh, you know. Uh, problems like Missy that we're going to see um, later on, it remains to be seen. But I mean, Missy is really a terrible, terrible thing. It's, you know, mostly in uh, average age is around eight, nine year olds, males a little bit higher than females. It's about three weeks after a COVID infection. Um, and it can be mild. It's not just, you know, severe COVID. It can be like, I didn't even know that we, there are some kids that we've diagnosed with Miss C who have antibodies and that is a good time to use antibody testing. Um, But they may have had either an asymptomatic or a mild case. And then they end up with this um, inflammatory syndrome that can, you know, put them in the ICU on a ventilator on ECMO. And they've got, you know, heart problems, lung problems, um, you know, strokes, liver problems, it can be really awful. And, and we have definitely had children in the United States um, and the world die, die from MISCI. So again, there's so many reasons to get vaccinated. I think we think a lot about, well, kids don't die. They're only, you know, less than 1% of kids die of COVID. Well, you know, that's one reason, you know, hospitalization is another reason. MISCI is another reason long COVID is another reason. Just being home from school in quarantine and messing up your whole family and and missing your friends and things like that, that's another reason. Um, uh, Potentially spreading it to someone who is immune suppressed or pregnant uh, and, you know, could cause them to lose their life over it. There are just so many reasons for us to all, all be vaccinated. And we have a question in the chat. Um, I'm wondering if you can sort of help folks differentiate um, long COVID from Miss C. How do they know the difference? Yeah. So Miss Miss C is uh, uh, an acute and like critical uh, situation where they'll come in and they have it's a life threatening. You know, your blood pressure is dropping. You're in kind of shock. Um, you know, it's more an intensive care kind of thing. Whereas long COVID is, you know, my kid's just not right. He just is still so tired. He won't get out of bed. You know, he can't do his math. Um, he feels depressed. Um, and so there's, they are distinctly different. Is, is long COVID, um, significant in pediatrics? Yeah, we talked about that earlier. And I mean, we've, I think there's been 6 million cases documented, and that's probably a gross under documentation. Um, And there's an NIH study that is um, underway to look at long COVID in kids that's enrolling about a 1000 kids under 18. So um, it is significant. And um, it can be quite, um, you know, cause some uh, temporary impairment. And for some people, it can be long term, I think we know a lot more about it in adults than we do kids, but um, kids definitely do get long COVID and it can be quite um, discouraging and debilitating. I can't even imagine being a kid and just feeling sick for months on end. It's kind of like, you know, people think about my kid had mono. 
um, or they had, you know, mono for a long period of time. It's like that, that they, you know, got an infection, EB, it's an Epstein-Barr EBV infection. They got it, got over it, but really never got back to their baseline, didn't feel good. Um, or people who have recovered from the acute infection of Lyme disease, but they just, you know, continue to have joint pain and fatigue. And there's just something that, whether it's a inflammatory or an immune response that you're just not clearing and closing it out is uh, what we have a lot to learn from. Cheryl, why don't you go ahead and tell us where you're from? I'm Cheryl from Iowa. I work out of a tumor. I work with children and youth with special health care needs, which is already a vulnerable population. I'm seeing some of the kids that come in my clinic, and these can be kids with behavioral issues. It can be kids with autism. It can be kids with genetic syndromes who are already scared about their kids. And so they're saying, what should I do about the vaccine? And my advice is your child, unless there's a medical contraindication, your child should be vaccinated. But is there, are there any specific recommendations for those of us who work with this population? Because these, these families are already scared. And I got some saying, man, I got my kid that vaccine the minute I, you know, it could get him in and others saying, oh, there's no way I'm going to do a vaccine. Why should I? So anything specific for that population of kids? Yeah. Thanks, Cheryl. Yeah. Um, children with special needs. I, you know, they're near and dear to my heart after 40 some years in pediatrics. Um, I would say that they um, are even a higher priority in many cases to get vaccinated because many kids with with special needs don't clear their airways well they can't handle their secretions if they were to get a you know a pulmonary infection from covid it could make them you know so much worse um, in their underlying condition um, so there really isn't a contraindications or reasons not to, there's no diagnosis or disease like there is. So for measles, you can't give a measles containing vaccine to someone who is immune uh, suppressed, uh, live vaccines, we don't. But there's no diagnosis uh, for COVID vaccine that you would outwardly say, don't give it to this this person with this diagnosis. It would be only if they had had dose one and had a severe anaphylactic reaction, which is only about two um, per million, two to five or so per million doses. So it's very uncommon. No one has died from it. They've been, you know, assisted through epinephrine in in the emergency room, or if they have an an allergy uh, to uh, some of the components to the vaccines. And even if they do, um, they should be working with an allergist to try to to get them. I think one of the questions behind that question is not so much the safety of the vaccine, but, oh, my kid hates to get poked. How are we going to do that without a bunch of drama? And so we really have to, we have to be attentive to pain reduction, to making sure that it's a positive experience for them and, and get creative. If there's some combative, you know, kids with um, uh, autism or ADD, we've, we've done some really creative things like, okay, drive up to the front circle, keep them in their seatbelt. We'll come down to you, sit next to them, hold their hand. And then, you know, we vaccinate them right in the car, or we have a little living room um, near our clinic and we've taken some kids in where the lights are low and there's a TV show on that they can be distracted and it feels more like a home setting than a clinical setting. Um, you know, have uh, consider home care nursing. Some kids have 
you know, are, are so like fretful over, over the poke itself that we've done it under anesthesia if they were getting another um, procedure. So you just have to be creative. Um, and the main thing is that the vaccinators know how to vaccinate children, like how the position that they should never have to lie down on their back or be held down. They should be able to sit up and see what's going on. You should go quickly um, because sometimes that anticipation of the poke is worse than, uh, worse than the poke itself. So so there's a lot of good tricks that we do to, um, you know, make it as positive experience. And really and truly, most of the kids, including kids with Down syndrome and, you know, really frantic, anxious kids have said, that's it. That was, I didn't even feel it. I mean, really, that is the most common thing that we hear from kids was, oh my gosh, what was I worrying, worrying about? It was, that was it. So um, thanks for taking care of those kids, Cheryl. They're really, really special. And I just wanted to mention, I saw, I believe you were involved in this, um, some bunny rabbit involvement oh, in yes. the clinic. Yes. Yeah. We have um, pet therapy uh, at Children's and um, the bunnies came to the last big, uh, big dose too for our five to 11 year olds. And they were quite a hit. They started to kind of like clump together. And I was like, okay, let's, let's spread out and bring the bunnies to you. you know? So we have to think about those things, but yeah, it really, really helped help the kids a lot. It was fun. I just want to say that at the next vaccine clinic I go to, I kind of want bunny rabbits. Oh, adult medicine needs a lot of things we do for pediatrics. That's for sure. Patsy, what is it about all vaccines and vaccination and kids that makes you so passionate about kids getting vaccinated? Well, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I, you know, I had some of these diseases as a kid. I have memories of having chicken pox and measles and mumps. I even had hepatitis A and was in the hospital for that. So that was probably my earliest um, introduction, but, you know, seeing kids with hip meningitis die of that and, or lose their hearing, um, seeing kids with measles, you know, in Minnesota that our 1990 outbreak where three children died and they died in our, in our hospital. When you know, these are vaccine preventable diseases that no family has to go through this horrific situation. We've seen it firsthand. It's like, the vaccines are safe. They're effective. We would not recommend them. I, you know, honestly would not recommend them as I do to my own family. My daughter was 21 weeks pregnant. And all we had at that time was expert opinion. We didn't have any studies, but I said, honey, if you get COVID, it is not going to be good. But if you get this vaccine, it's going to make you, you know, have a better chance protecting you and this, you know, soon to be grandson of mine. So um, I guess it's seeing, seeing things firsthand and knowing um, the power of the human immune system and how natural it is and how amazing it is. And that va vaccines basically just use that same process and, and it gives you all the benefit of building the antibodies and none of the risk of having a wicked disease. So it's, it's amazing. It is amazing. And so are you, Patsy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, everyone who joined us. Um, thank you to all of you for all what you do and for your care and concern and, and uh, happy holidays. Stay safe, make good, good risk uh, based choices and stay safe. And this eventually will 
turn into like influenza where we'll be getting vaccines in the fall and, you know, try to, you know, minimize the number of people hospitalized and overwhelming. And, you know, we're, we are going to get to the point where we'll be living with this. Like we have our influenza vaccines with the four strains. We'll probably be doing that with, with this, uh, this beast of a virus as well. So until then hang in there and uh, thanks for all that you guys do. Thank you so much for listening in on that wonderful Q&A with Patsy Stinchfield. And thank you again to Patsy. She's always wonderful. Uh, You know, this is the time that if you are a person still waiting on getting your kids vaccinated, please go do it now. (laughs) Right now. Yeah, right now. Like, pick your child up this second and just walk out the door and go to a clinic. And Um, if you're due for a booster, you need that booster yesterday. If your child is due for a booster, most likely if they're 12 and up, they're going to be able to get one at the time that you're listening to this. So get that done immediately, please. I already have my kiddo's booster appointment made, so you can do it. All right. With that, I'm just going to say thank you and goodbye. My name is Karen Ernst. I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. Please find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra from uh, Blank Jones Hospital. You can mostly find me on Twitter. My handle is PedsGeekMD. To learn more, visit factstalk.org.